Was that perfect timing or bad timing? Gemar Chatima Tova, everyone. So two men come to the rabbi before Yom Kippur and ask for his help in settling their differences. He listens to both of their positions, why they were angry and why neither was prepared to apologize to the other. And the rabbi sat and listened and he thought for a while. And then he requested that on his signal that they would at least shake hands with each other. They looked warily, but in the end, they briefly shook their hands. Gentlemen, the rabbi says, I'm gratified that you've put your differences aside long enough to shake your hands. However, in the spirit of the holiest day of the year that is coming, I'm going to ask that you speak to each other in a tone of reconciliation. One of the men agrees to start, and he addresses the other. I wish for you, he says, everything in the new year that you wish for me. And the other says, you see, Rabbi, he's starting up again. <laughs> Perhaps the two foremost researchers of cognitive processes, in other words, how the brain works, are Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Kahneman wrote a book, I think it was a bestseller, called Thinking Fast and Slow. Anyway, Tversky unfortunately passed away before Kahneman would win a Nobel Prize for their work together. They met in Israel, and both are Jewish, hence the Nobel Prize. <laughs> Tversky was a caustic, sharp-tongued man, hence being Israeli. And a story, in fact, is told about Tversky, where after giving a lecture somewhere in Europe, someone comes over to him and says, you know, as a general rule, I don't like Jews, but in your case, I'm going to make an exception. And Tversky replies to him saying, you know, as a general rule, I like non-Jews, but in your case, I'm going to make an exception. <laughs> but Tversky and Kahneman's real contribution that brought the Nobel Prize was this one, this enormously important idea. The human mind is gullible. Its gullibility is written large into its coding, and it leads us often to live lives under false assumptions and false conclusions. In other words, our minds are wired to deceive us. And if we needed Kahneman and Tversky to tell us this, then we definitely need Yom Kippur to bring us closer to the truth. You know, as a child, I was a huge science fiction fan. Asimov and Clark and Heinlein the world of my childhood was occupied with questions of life beyond us and what might come if they ever came here. In fact, some of Steven Spielberg's greatest movies are about close encounters with aliens and how humanity changes in the face of these non-humans. Spielberg saw both good and bad would come from us. Many of the alien movies of today are apocalyptic ones, interestingly. Independence Day and Cloverfield and Super 8. These are stories that tell of danger and violence when we encounter visitors from beyond our world. But isn't the truth always stranger than fiction? If we met for coffee and I asked you what was the most important headline of the past year, what would you say to me? Trump, tariffs, the Me Too movement? But I think none of that's true. Let me share with you what it might be. Less than a year ago, less than a year ago, the United States Department of Defense released a video taken in 2012. 
It was footage that was taken from an F-14 fighter jet intercepting a flying object. The conversation of the pilots reveals their eyes were seeing what we're seeing in the video, that this was not a weather balloon or a wayward satellite or an experimental aircraft or a drone. The former director of this unit that investigated these encounters resigned his position in protest and took to the waves in a series of interviews on all the major networks. He complained that the U.S. government was deliberately and systematic hiding, hiding critical information of alien life from its citizens and the world. As he said, what was considered science fiction is now science fact. And what happened after that was unimaginable. Science fiction imagined encounters with aliens that would be good or would be bad or a mix of both, but they never imagined that we would ignore it. But we did. Drummed out by the noise of our iTunes, the beeps and chirps of our texts and emails, selfies on Instagram and Snapchat, who has time for alien invasions? And yet, and yet, it happened. And we deceive ourselves, as Kahneman and Tversky predicted, of a life-altering truth. So when people ask me, you know, Rabbi, who has the reasons for faith or who has time for religion, I tell them the same thing. It's not a question as to whether or not God exists. And it's not a matter if religion has meaning for our time. It's a question about us. Are we even prepared to listen? We live with assumptions about what we think are the realities of our lives. We go about thinking what we see and touch and understand are the parameters of what makes our life real. But what if none of them are true? What if most of the things that you make assumptions about are simply not true? Because this is the argument that Judaism has been making, and it's the one that Yom Kippur repeats, that we are not to trust ourselves. It says that there lies a voice greater than ours, a truth supremely above and beyond us that is calling and saying, do not believe your eyes. For this reason, Judaism's most sacred prayer calls us Shema Yisrael, hear Israel. We must listen to the voice. This voice says to heed the call of centuries of those who have come before you and to humbly accept that we are all here but for the briefest of moments. And if we are to make something of the gift of life that we have been given, we must heed the mystic chords of memory the sound of which stretches from every Jewish heart that has ever lived and stand upon their shoulders of those who have come before us and hold their truth to make ours better. Ma'anu, the prayers of this evening ask, what are we? Tonight, as the words and sounds of the prayers embrace you, I want to answer it for you. I want you to leave this evening feeling something that you didn't when you walked in here. I want you to begin seeing, but feelingly. So I have a story of two walks to share with you. The first one is an evening this summer in Israel that I spent with my wife, Lisa. The evening was cool and the streets were full with people. And I felt a feeling wash over me. At that time, I didn't have words, but tonight I want to find them with you. 
in that moment, it all seemed so remarkable to me. Just how ordinary it all was. Us, our people, here and now, there and here, alive but not just alive and vibrant and succeeding, and defying the sheer logic of what should have been, of what could have, should have come of us but didn't, which led me to think about you and me. Why are we here? And I don't mean this, for the record, in some kind of silly, esoteric, philosophical way. I mean literally. Why are we here? By all logic, centuries and centuries of persecution should have seen to it that you aren't here. That people would speak of the Jews the way that we speak of the Moors and the Etruscans and the ancient Egyptians. That you are here is because of the faith of your ancestors. They had a strength of soul not to convert when there were persecutions. They had the strength of soul to bring children into the world when Jews were being murdered. They had the strength of soul to believe even when their eyes said to them it was a lie. And you're the children of those people. And how is it that Israel survives? Just a little more than 50 years ago, in 1967, the Egyptians blockaded Israel's southern shipping route and expelled the UN peacekeeping troops on the border. Syrian and Jordanian armies joined together with the Egyptians encircling Israel. Hundreds of thousands of reservists were called up, crippling the economy of a country that was only three million strong at that time. High school children were pulled out of their classrooms to dig mass graves in the parks preparing for the deaths of thousands of civilians. Overwhelmed by the threat, then chief of the army, Yitzhak Rabin, suffered a temporary nervous breakdown. And Jews around the world, maybe you remember, feared for Israel's imminent destruction. Not that the Jews would suddenly vanish. Jewish communities around the world would continue to exist. But the life force, the self-confidence, the ability to live and dream, all of that would disappear. The longing that sustained us through adversity would be exposed at a ludicrous lie that we had waited 2,000 years of an exile for an event that would turn out to be just another Jewish nightmare. Yes, Jews had survived other losses. When you go to Jerusalem and you see the Western Wall, that's a symbol of the Roman destruction of the land of Israel. And yes, there were expulsions and inquisitions and pogroms and book burnings. But your ancestors believed that the same God who they thought was punishing them would also one day redeem them. But whatever faith has managed to survive our experiences in a post-Holocaust modern world would be tested to the breaking point by the destruction of Israel. Few Jews, if any, would accept another narrative of divine punishment. Israel had to survive because I think the Jewish people wouldn't survive the destruction of Israel. That summer's evening, I rediscovered something essential. We simply cannot live in a world without Israel. Whatever we imagine God to be or not be, we must agree that we've been given reason enough to believe to hand it over to those who come after you. And that's what I saw on my second walk. Last summer in Berlin, we were walking to find the grave 
of Germany's greatest Jewish philosopher, Moses Mendelssohn. I stood at the entrance to the cemetery and read that his gravestone was not the original one. The original had been destroyed by the SS, along with the rest of the cemetery, in 1941. The information sign then told me more. On that night, the Nazis had come with bulldozers and razed the entire cemetery ground. And I caught my breath. How far they went to destroy us, where even our dead weren't dead enough. And at that very moment, that very moment, I heard the sound of children singing, Hevenu Shalom Aleichem. At first I thought, I wondered if I was imagining it. And then it dawned on me that it was coming from the open windows of the Jewish school next door, a school named after Mendelssohn himself. A Jewish school in Berlin, built next to a raised Jewish cemetery, singing in Hebrew. You live in a miraculous time. And the problem with miracles is that the more often you see them, the less you see them. But tonight I want you to see it and see it feelingly. This is the moment of the bond appeal. And before you is a card. When you purchase an Israel bond, it's not a donation. It's an investment that pays a guaranteed return. On the card are different numbers that you can choose from. But more than the state of Israel needs the bond, we need it. We need to show ourselves, remind our children and our grandchildren of what we can't live without. Being here is one of those things, but what's over there is the other. Tonight we remember that you will never find a truer investment in your life than investing in what you believe in. Gamar Khatima Tova, everyone. A meaningful fast, and thank you so much.